0: This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voices of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voices of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning.
1: This podcast is sponsored in part by the Downtown San Diego Partnership, a nonprofit advocate for the economic vitality and growth of downtown. From side-splitting annual dinners to free weekly yoga classes, the Downtown Partnership hosts dozens of can't-miss events each year. Get your tickets now to the annual Taste of Downtown, one of the premier culinary events in San Diego. Experience the flavors of Downtown by sampling tasty bites from more than 40 restaurants throughout the Gaslamp Quarter, Financial District, and East Village on September 14th. To buy tickets and learn more about upcoming events, becoming a member, and the partnership's vision for Downtown San Diego, visit www.DowntownSanDiego.org.
2: You know, I had 2,500 bucks. I had a Ford Ranger and I had a set of tools. I had my computer that I had since I was 16, my desk and a bed, and I moved into a house that was being remodeled of one of my customers so that I would have no overhead expense while I figured this thing out. Uh, Yeah, it was pretty challenging. The plan was figure it out and uh, don't fail.
1: (laughs) From Voice of San Diego, this is I Made It in San Diego, a podcast about the stories behind the region's businesses, the big and the small, and the people who made them what they are. I'm Lisa Halverstadt, and in this week's show, we'll talk to Daniel Sullivan about how he went from living in a garage to running one of the region's most successful solar companies. Sullivan Solar Power President Daniel Sullivan quit a well-paying job as an electrician to start a solar company, certain that the technology would take off. It was 2004. He had little more than $2,500 in an old pickup truck. He ended up living in a client's garage for eight months. Daniel was unfazed by this slow start though and his persistence and motivation eventually led to the creation of a solar company that pulls in $50 million a year and operates in San Diego, Orange County, and the Inland Empire. Daniel grew up in San Diego and when he graduated high school and all his friends started going off to college, he decided to take a different route.
2: What made sense was to go into the trade school, and I went to the IBW Electrical uh, Apprenticeship Program, which is a five-year program. You go to school two nights a week and um, work 40 hours during the week. So that made a lot of sense to me. And then after finishing that program, I started studying photovoltaic or solar power systems because I had a job I had to do to get electricity to a very remote location. And when I did so, a light bulb went on for me that this is what I should be doing with my life because it was the perfect intersection of everything I cared about the environment my trade and it's just really cool technology so that's how I got into it
1: so you went to this training and you thought wow this is really exciting what happened next
2: I went to my boss and I said look this is something that I think is gonna be a big deal and he uh, he rebuked me he's like no no this is not interesting to me I went back a couple more times and then finally he said nobody's gonna do that but if you want to go out and drum up the business, you know, I'll give you a piece of it. And I said, okay, so I have to do all the work. You don't believe in this, and you're only gonna give me a small cut of anything that gets developed. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I told him, I said, okay, well, I'm gonna quit. I'm gonna go out on my own.
1: What motivated Daniel was something he considered bigger than himself. He was unsettled by the California energy crisis. He worried in the lead-up to the war in Iraq, where talk of large oil reserves loomed, and he had a son who was born just a few years earlier.
2: So it all came together for me that this is what I need to do. This is what makes sense. In that we can't continue to be beholden to an industry that reaps havoc all over the world. And so, with this technology and the fact that you know I'd grown up in San Diego, I knew that we had all the sunshine we needed. We didn't have a lot of fossil fuels, why aren't we doing this? Back then there was probably um, a couple dozen companies that did solar and there was only maybe 100 systems on the grid, so it was mind boggling to me that nobody had taken this and um, taken it to the next level. So I wanted to do my part and this became my calling This is what I went after.
1: But you must have been thinking, okay, I don't have that much money in the bank. I don't have a big investor to help me out. What were you thinking in terms of what the plan was? Was there a plan?
2: (laughs) Yeah, go out and make it happen. It's So, you know, a couple years ago, the company had got to a point where it just started becoming more and more difficult to get the people within the company to understand the why to what we do and I had gone back into some old files I had, and I saw uh, notes I had typed to myself, and it was almost naive in, in how, I, how I had written it out, but you know, I said, by this year, I'm gonna get this done, by this year, I'm gonna get this done, and by this year, I was gonna get this done. If I moved all those years, added three years to it, then that would've probably been pretty close to accurate. Um, you're right, though, I didn't have a big investor, and I didn't have the means to go out and uh, ask people for money. I didn't know how to, I'm an electrician by trade. And so it was really a matter of taking what little resources I did have and make the best of them. And so, you know, I had 2,500 bucks, I had a Ford Ranger and I had a set of tools. Um, I had my computer that I had since I was 16, my desk and a bed, and I moved into a house that was being remodeled of one of my customers so that I would have no overhead expense while I figured this thing out. Uh, Yeah, it was pretty challenging. The plan was figure it out and uh, don't fail.
1: (laughs) Around this time, Daniel stopped seeing his young son regularly. He had gone through a divorce and wanted his son to get to know his dad as a success, not someone living in a garage. Somehow, though, Daniel managed to stay motivated.
2: It was really a, a sink or swim situation. You know, when you don't have... A backstop when you don't have a safety net, when you don't have a means to provide for yourself, unless you succeed, uh, you know, at every step, you're very mindful of every decision you make, and so that twenty five hundred dollars had to be um, built upon each and every week, not each and every month, not each and every year. Each and every week had to be a success, and each and every week the bills had to be paid. So it makes you become very focused when there is no room for error. And so I committed, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to fail. And I think, you know, it's just coming back to me now. There were, um, I think one of my biggest motivators was actually people said that there's not a chance you're going to succeed. You know, and people tell me, I've learned about myself over the years, when people tell me I can't do something, I take great pride in showing them that I can People started disappearing when I moved into the garage and they said, well, hit me up if it doesn't work out. Not, you know, come to me if you ever need help, it's hit me up if it doesn't work out. So I wanted to make sure they all remembered that I didn't go to them and that I did succeed. And that this mission is a mission that I'm ultimately gonna accomplish. So I think that was my greatest motivator at the time.
1: For most of us, it would be hard to stay motivated in this situation. A routine helped Daniel stay focused.
2: What I found at this time, because I was pretty isolated, you know, it was all work, no play, and there weren't a lot of people around me. But I found that if I stay regimented and had a structured schedule, uh, that those downtimes when I wasn't thinking about things became very limited. So, you know, Monday through Saturday was work, and then. Um, from the time I wake up in the morning to the time I go to sleep. Then Sunday was, you know, go to the laundromat, get your laundry done, plan out the next week, rinse and repeat week after week after week. And I did that for several years. And you know, it is trying emotionally. It's very difficult. I missed my son. Um, I missed my old lifestyle, but as long as I stayed focused on what I was doing, I would overcome that.
1: And what was happening with your business at this time? <clears throat> so you were, you're living in a garage and uh, probably trying anything you can to get people to buy a system.
2: It was pretty, it was pretty trying living in a garage, getting up and uh, going out and trying to convince people to take on what they viewed as a, a new technology. But um, because I was passionate about what I was doing, You know, every setback was an opportunity to learn and do it better the next time. We slowly built the company, and I say we because early on my childhood best friend became my first employee. He was my assistant, my apprentice, um, and my counsel when I needed someone to talk to. So we'd go out and find customers, and slowly but surely we'd bring more and more people to our ranks and then they became advocates. It was important that every single person we touched became a believer in what we were trying to accomplish, uh, which isn't easy to do with a technology people have never heard of. And when you're asking them to spend $30,000 with a company that's operating out of a garage.
1: Try to think back. What was it like getting your first customer? Do you remember the first customer that you had and, and how that went?
2: Uh, yeah, Andy. I won't, I won't say his last name. But um, he was... Well, there was two They went about the same time. But Andy was the most rewarding because he was the director of the National Electrical Contractors Association in San Diego. And I had gone to a meeting, um, and afterwards I pulled him aside and I said, you know, you should consider going solar. And he gave me a lot of what my old boss gave me, which was, you know, stuff doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. It's not cost effective. And I said, okay, well, I'll challenge that. Let me come over to your house and give you a presentation. And uh, you let me know if it doesn't make sense when I'm done. He's like, all right, but you're going to be wasting your time. So I went over there. And by the end of it, he was a believer. So one hour presentation. He's like, all right, I see how it makes sense. I'll give it a shot. Let's do it. So that was um, 13 years ago. His solar power system still producing what it did back then. He paid for it uh, through savings uh, six years after he went solar. So it did everything he, I said it would do. And he's ecstatic, and he's one of our greatest advocates. So that was super rewarding.
1: How did you get to the point where you were able to get out of the garage? How long did that take, and what did it take?
2: That was about—so— um, This was a house of a customer who was doing a major remodel, and I was doing the electrical work there. And that took, I was expecting to stay there a year. It took about eight months. And then eight months later, I think I'd had enough of it, and I figured out a way to to move into um, an office in a business park in Miramar. But obviously what it took was money. You know, I didn't have any money at the beginning. And my customer was gracious enough to offer that to me at no cost um, in exchange for taking care of their house, right? So, um, yeah, moved into this tiny office warehouse that wasn't much bigger than this room, about 15 by 15 uh, feet, and the warehouse wasn't any bigger. And in the office, I had a high-to-bed couch, my desk, and my computer, which... Um, I had to hide a bed because i had employees then i didn't want them to see that i was sleeping in that office at night in the warehouse i had built a a makeshift closet that was um disguised so they couldn't tell that it was where i put my clothes and i had uh got a refrigerator so that's what i needed the luxury (laughs) the luxury
1: and how long were you living in that situation
2: in the office warehouse i think that was about a year Because, you know, it was really luxurious, so I could stay there longer. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, it was a continuation of the same thing. You keep working, you keep building the business by keeping true to your values. And after about a year, um, I moved to downtown San Diego. And for a short period of time, I moved out of downtown, but I've been there ever since.
1: In that time that you were in the warehouse, were you seeking out investors? Were you you know, trying to obviously really evangelize on this?
2: So I would go out and and, um, teach people about the the merits of CoinSolar, what it could mean for them, what it could mean for our region. But at no time did I go out seeking investors. I don't know why I'm investor-averse. I think it really ties back to the fact that I do not want anybody telling me how to run a company um, that is so close to what I care about. As soon as somebody gives you money, they think they can start telling you what to do. And Sullivan Solar Power exists to make the world a better place for the benefit of our customers, not for the benefit of an investor. So that was never something that was interesting to me. As a result, I also didn't have a safety net. So it kept me true to the roots of the company, which is every dollar comes in, put that back in the company, build it up, build it again, build it again.
1: How at this point were you going about trying to get customers? Obviously, people were just learning about solar. There were a lot of skeptics. Um, A lot of people just didn't even know about it.
2: Yeah, um, I heard about this thing called the internet. (laughs) (laughs) um, Oh man, I wish I remember the name of this company. It probably still exists, but it's basically a build your own website company. And so um, I built a website and back then, like you were saying, there weren't a lot of people that knew about it. So the fact that there's a website about solar power for your house in San Diego um, was revolutionary. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what year was this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no.
2: This this was like 2006, right? So I built the website in 2006, and it actually was really well received. It wasn't a great website. It was horrific in appearance. But, <laughs> but it had the information people wanted, and it was about teaching people, you know, about going solar. There are other companies that have websites. I'm not pretending this was the first solar website, but that and then um, surely that plus surely thereafter we started advertising on um, KPBS, which sounds nuts considering how small we were, but those are the people that are uh, the demographic. So I met with the KPBS representative. The demographic there, they understand what we're trying to do. And so those people started calling us in large numbers, and that's when we exploded. The combination of the website and radio advertising made the company take off, and we moved from growing pretty slowly to pretty quickly. Um, And, you know, my mind was blown. I'm like, wow, I should have done this a long time ago, and it worked out great.
1: When we come back, how the business Daniel built out of a garage became one of San Diego's best-known solar companies.
2: The people that work at Sullivan Solar Power are driven by what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, our tagline is leading the solar energy revolution. They believe in that. They want to completely revolt and change the grid and change the way this world uses, generates electricity. And so they come to work empowered and passionate about what we're trying to do. And that's what's driving the growth. It's not me.
0: I Made It in San Diego is made possible in part by a proud supporter of Make-A-Wish San Diego. Enjoy this short sponsored interview with Make-A-Wish and catch the rest of the interview at the end of the show. Suzanne Hughesby is vice president of Make-A-Wish San Diego, a nonprofit that grants wishes of children with life-threatening medical conditions.
3: Suzanne, thanks for being in the studio today. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And you call them wish kids, right? Uh, tell me more about some of the kids that you get to work with.
3: Right, so we grant wishes, as you said, to kids who have critical illnesses. So um, kids between two and a half and 17 who are dealing with a life-threatening or a critical illness qualify for a wish. And there's actually a misconception out there that we only grant um, last wishes or that kids are end of life in order to qualify, which is not the case. Um, if a child has a critical illness, they'll qualify. Many kids go on to live you know, well beyond their wish, and the wish actually became a positive turning point for them um, in their battle.
0: Oh yeah, that's great to hear. I I do think that is a misconception. Um, That's something I thought. So you get to check in and and see your Wish kids grow up.
3: Uh, On occasion, some of them do stay involved. We actually had a former Wish child who, um, when she started college, became an intern in our office. So that's always nice to see kids on the other side of their journey.
0: You can hear the rest of this sponsored interview with Make-A-Wish San Diego at the end of
1: today's show. Welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Lisa Halverstadt. The founder of any fast-growing business quickly learns they can't do it all. New workers start serving at the front lines of the company. They end up selling what the founder created. And it's not always easy. Here's how Daniel remembers that transition.
2: Everyone that came into the company, I tried to, like I did with the customer, teach them. Teach them the skill sets that I had learned over the years about what makes sense, what doesn't make sense when it comes to solar design. And, um how to properly present it to a potential customer, how to properly manage the job, because up to that point, I wore every hat. I was the project manager, I was the sales representative, I was the janitor, you know, whatever needed to be done, I had a hand in it. And so then at that point, it became necessary to start taking certain hats off and giving them entirely to an individual because there was just too much work to be done, which meant I had to teach them everything I knew. And trust that they would take it to the next level. Um, so that was pretty rewarding, and we we moved out of the um, the Silverton office to an office on Arjon's about two blocks away. That was two times the size, and you know we declared we made it big. So it was it was pretty exciting. Uh, and then the the people who had come into the company started taking off with their own expertise, and then we grew it. And slowly but surely, it was the the commitment to educating our employees that made us ultimately grow.
1: Were there ever points where you thought you couldn't do this? No. So you were always just steadfast and thought, you could make this work. You were determined.
2: There was times when I was nervous. Um, I never doubted our ability to grow the company and to take care of the customers and that we were doing the right thing. That was never anything I was concerned about. I started to see that there were companies coming into the market that were backed by pretty large investment funds. That made me nervous. And I didn't know how it was all going to shake out. After seeing them operate for a few years, it became clear to me that these organizations were driven by the bottom line and that the way they treated their people and the way they treated their customers was not very ethical. And so there's still some of those companies out there today that my crystal ball tells me aren't going to be around in the next five years. So when doing things right, you can build a company in a way that is going to have longevity. But if you're in the business to make a quick buck or to make a a big splash and grab market share don't expect to be here longer than solvent solar power will be
1: but were there ever moments where you just worried about paying the bills i mean whether it was you yeah, know starting <laughs> <laughs> tell me a little bit about that were there <clears> ever <throat> points where you like just really were you know up all night thinking how am i even going to do this
2: yeah i was i was very stressed uh, many nights many weeks many months where It was, you know, hand to mouth. You get a check and you get that into the bank account as quickly as possible so that you have the money to cover your bills, which are due the next day. It's very stressful. And that's the biggest stress of a business owner is managing cash flow. I think the lessons learned early on, not having a lot of money at my disposal helped with that. You don't take earnings for granted. You don't let money go to waste. And you instill that in the people around you, and that helps you as you get bigger and bigger.
1: Surprisingly, a fire that destroyed nearly 300,000 acres around the time Daniel started his business helped his business. San Diegans, whose homes were destroyed in the Cedar Fire, got financial incentives to go solar when they began rebuilding their homes.
2: A lot of people in East County were rebuilding their homes, and we went out and... Taught them you know you you have an incentive available to you and they embrace the technology so it was good to see that these these homes that were older homes at the time um, were being rebuilt these fire victims were benefiting from a program that was designed specifically for fire victims so we made them aware of it and a lot of people signed up
1: one thing that i kind of keep coming back to as is, is you're talking is that you know there was a big sales component, obviously, of what you were doing. You had to be confident that the systems that you were building were working, that everything was going to work out. Were there ever times that that was was hard to kind of put on that Big smile and go out and say, "Hey, I, I have a great solar system for you. It's gonna pencil out. I'm gonna be around in five to ten years when <laughs> you know <laughs> something goes wrong."
2: Yeah. So when I pull up in my Ford Ranger uh, from the the garage that I was operating out of, it was it was I was conscious of the fact that this person who was intending to do um, or considering doing a large investment for their home. Would have concerns about who i am and what the company is at that time so i taught them i said look this is the technology we're lining you up with and this is why because this technology or this manufacturer has a proven track record i'm a master electrician i've been in the electrical trade for you know nearly a decade and this is how we're going to approach your system so that they could be comfortable with our approach The thing that we started with is still alive today in the company, and that is the systems have to perform in order for somebody to realize their return on investment. So if you're asking somebody, you know, spend $20,000 to put these squares on your roof that are going to generate electricity and give you energy savings, you need to provide them with high-quality products that are installed by people who know what they're doing. So state-licensed electricians who have been trained and you need to provide assurances and accountability for the customer in the form of guarantees so that they know that their investment is safe. We want everybody we touch to be an advocate for going solar in year 20 like they were the day we turned their system on. And that can only be accomplished if the systems are performing as promised.
1: How hard was it to get friends and family members to even believe in this pitch?
2: Oh, um, very <laughs> difficult to do. So, uh, you know, whether it was my boss before I took the leap or my first customer, they said like my friends and family said, you know, you're 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 nuts. Uh, you're leaving a career where you have retirement, you have health and welfare, you have everything you need. Why are you doing this? So, the naysayers they ended up motivating me really and um, so I thank them for that but Mm -hmm. at the time I wasn't too happy with them
1: they made you a fighter yeah. the Christina Aguilera
0: song
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'd use that reference but okay (laughs)
1: One thing I definitely want to talk about too is just how fast your company grew. Can you talk a little bit about the, you know, early on it's you and your friend, then you had a few employees.
2: Sure. So, um, like I said earlier, you know, my best friend from childhood became employee number one. He's still with the company today and now he has, uh, 60 to 70 electricians that report to him. Um, so he's he's done well for himself. <laughs> and um it grew, you know, the first year I think we did uh around a hundred thousand dollars, first twelve months in business, and then two hundred and then three hundred. And now uh last year we did fifty million. So that's a pretty substantial jump over a thirteen year period. Definitely. Um rewarding, stressful, substantial, and fast. So being able to manage that, I can't say that I did it entirely myself. In fact, I probably didn't even do the majority of it. The The people who came into the company and their commitment to what we're trying to do has made this growth possible. I've been very fortunate in that the people that work at Sullivan Solar Power are driven by what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, our tagline is leading the solar energy revolution. They believe in that. They want to completely revolt and change the grid and change the way this world uses, generates electricity. And so they come to work empowered and passionate about what we're trying to do. And that's what's driving the growth. It's not me. It's them. So they took, they took the torch and they're running with it.
1: What surprised you most uh, about your business as you got going with it? Was there anything that really shocked you?
2: Anything that shocked? Yeah, um, the biggest shock came in the f- in the form of a shot across the bow by the uh, local utility, San Diego Gas and Electric. I suffered from a delusion that this solar thing was going to be loved by everybody. And because the PR that I had seen from SDG&E, the public relations efforts that they made, I thought they were on board with the idea too. But when you um, look a little closer... The investor-owned utilities in the state of California despise distributed generation solar power, and they want to shut it down. And so, I think it was eight years ago, SDG&E filed uh, a petition with the Public Utilities Commission to start charging solar producers for the energy that they were putting on the grid.
1: At the time, SDG&E proposed adding a network charge to solar customers' bills, a move they said would help the utility maintain the grid. They billed it as a fairness issue. Solar champions like Sullivan weren't happy.
2: So think about that. My customers are putting energy on the grid in the middle of the day. sdg and I want to charge them a rate for the energy they are providing them. That's insane. And when I saw that, when I saw that attempt by them, I'm like, oh, great. We've got the the utilities coming after our industry, and they're getting focused. So that scared me, and uh, it startled me. That's when I realized that uh, I'm going to have to get engaged a little bit politically and on the regulatory side.
1: And you definitely have. I, I would actually say you're one of the more outspoken business owners in town in some ways because you are, you come out and you're willing to get right to the crux of the issue. Um, can you talk about how that's uh, changed over the years or what that was like, kind of being more open about the challenges? <laughs>
2: I think it ties back to the friends and family question early on in the business. They said, you can't do this. I said, oh, yeah, watch this, and so we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to move this city to 100% renewable energy. I'm going to build this business to be a very powerful and influential company to make the world a better place. So when it comes to um, utility attacks or fossil fuel uh, manipulation, industry manipulation, I will be the first person to stand up and say, absolutely not, You're, we're not going to believe your lies. We're not going to believe what you tell people. Um, And we're going to educate those people about the things you're saying because they're just falsehoods at best.
1: But the industry's also benefited from different incentives over the years. What's that been like as a a business owner who's affected by some of the changes, the highs and the lows of that?
2: One of the things that made solar very interesting in the beginning was that the state of California, this also ties back to the previous question. I, I thought everyone's on board. This is where we're going. This makes sense. So the state of California had an incentive program which was really the spawn of the um, energy crisis of 2000-2001, saying, you know, we need, move this, we need to diversify our state and get more resources out there. So there were incentives from the state of California. There was incentives from the federal government, that's why I believed everybody wanted this. And these were policies that both the federal government, both sides of the aisle, believe it or not, and the uh, state government supported to move our region or country away from fossil fuels and towards the future. That did benefit the industry as a whole. It took what was an industry that was 100 systems and a couple dozen companies in San Diego to what it is today, where there are 700 plus companies in the region, the region being San Diego only, 700 in San Diego alone, uh, nearly, well, where are we at now? We've got to be nearly 120,000 systems, not 100, 120,000 systems deployed. So those were good policies um, from both sides of the aisle said, this is what we're gonna do. That definitely benefited the industry and my company as well. The state programs ended several years ago and um, the tax credit's the only thing that's left from the federal government. The solar cost as a result of this growth has dropped down Substantially, back when companies started, a typical solar power system would cost between 45,000 and bucks, 45 000 to $50,000 for your typical system. Today, that is uh, $20,000, so it's half the cost and the incentives more or less are gone. And we're able to compete with fossil fuel generated electricity. So we're where we need to be.
1: But are you concerned at all with just some of the the changes in the administration, for example, about what might be coming next for your company?
2: You know, when I hear you call it an administration, it gives it more respect than it deserves. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, when the current administration got um, elected, it was very concerning for the industry. But when you look at who is actually in place in congress it's the same congress that supported the tax credits that benefit renewable energy today so given what we're seeing from the oval office i don't think they're going to be able to derail what the rest of the government federal government has already decided they want to do which is continue to support uh, solar power and renewable energy as a whole.
1: it was interesting you made a comment in a past interview that you know building up a solar system it was something that you mastered, and then you had to learn to master building up a staff. Can you talk a little bit about what you've learned about management as your company has gone from literally you in a garage with a friend to something so much bigger?
2: <laughs> I think the number one thing I've learned and I need to continually remind myself is not everybody thinks like me. So <laughs> it's being able to communicate um, to people in the way they want to be communicated to. And that's not always the same way as how I want to hear or or how I want to say things. So that's probably one of the most important lessons I've learned and being able to align a person's uh, inherent strengths with something that they're doing while also trying to bolster their weaknesses so that those become uh, not as important or not as relevant. So this is an ongoing art that I'm trying to master I don't know if I ever will, but I'm definitely going to die trying.
1: As businesses grow from moms and pops to those that employ hundreds, it's easy for them to lose a bit of their identity. It's also common for leaders to need different skills to lead all those employees than they did to grow their business. I asked Daniel how he coped with that.
2: I started to feel as though we or I could be doing better to send people home fulfilled at the end of the day and, and continue to grow the company. I'd gotten to the point where um, I had to be humble about what my limitations are. You know, like I said, my background, I started digging ditches. I don't have a business background. I don't have a bunch of in- investors behind me. So I needed to bring someone in to help me understand the steps necessary to get the company to the next level. Once you move in from different sizes, you know, $10 million, $20 million, $30 million, $40 million, and $50 million company, the way you approach business starts to shift as well. And the amount of delegation has to change and the amount of trust has to change. And just the general approach of how you conduct yourself in this role needs to move because what worked in the beginning is not going to work where you are today. I started to understand that. I brought somebody in. In the beginning, it really sucked because he kept telling me everything I was doing was wrong. And that's the last thing I wanted to hear. (laughs) But he was right. And so um, I got a healthy dose of, a uh, humble pie and started to look at things differently.
1: One thing that really sticks out too about your business, you talked about your, your core values book, but you've also really stuck to, you know, a lot of things that you started with. So I have read about how, you know, you really pride yourself in still being a union shop. Um, you have a special program um, that supports the Catholic diocese. Um, you literally, the hat that you're wearing right now, has your family insignia on it, which is also your company insignia. Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Well, we'll start with the family crest. Going back to, you know, early on in what I was trying to envision what the company would become, I wanted a reminder of where I came from because I didn't want to get to the point, because I assumed success, right? I assumed that we were gonna to get to where we wanted to go, that I forgot the amount of sacrifice that got me to where I was so the the family crest serves it that as that reminder um, for me it means different things to other people they understand what the the symbols mean and this the line means strength this the serpent means wisdom and so forth but for me it serves as a reminder where I came from the um, the union part Well, it's not a plug for the union, but the union way of doing things is the right way of doing things in that they put everyone through an apprenticeship program that I benefited from. That knowledge and uh, commitment to doing things the right way stuck with me so much so that it's in every part of what we do. It's not just the electricians who are doing things the right way. Our sales staff, which are not allowed to be called sales guys because they don't sell anything. They are developers of projects. They have to do it in accordance with doing it the right way. And our training program, I tried to, within reason, align it with the apprenticeship program, which is teach everyone what they need to know so that they can do it right. Because absent training, you can talk about doing it right all day, but it's not going to get you anywhere. The union thing was actually, um, it was weirder, if you can say that, in the beginning, because people, you know, I would talk to people like we were saying earlier, saying, look, I'm giving you the best guys. These are union electricians. One guy came to me, he says, you're an upstart that might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard that you're using union labor. And I said, well, I can't afford to do it twice. So <laughs> that's when he's like, oh, okay, I get it. Right. So staying union, that's true to doing it the right way. The, the family crest is really knowing where you come from and giving back to a community that's been so generous to me makes a lot of sense.
1: So what, what do you think is next for Sullivan Solar Power in the next five to 10 years, what's the next goal?
2: So we talked earlier about how utilities are not big fans of distributed generation solar, and that's not to be confused with the solar that's in the desert because they can still control that and keep people beholden to their ridiculous rights. They don't want people moving away from their billing. And over the years, um, I've been engaged in you know, lobbying for the benefits of our customers and fighting in the regulatory arena to a certain extent as much as my time allows. And that's tiring. That's very tiring. And it's not um, something that's going to go away. So I don't feel the solution towards move, to moving us away from fossil fuels lies in the legislature or the Public Utilities Commission. I believe it lies in technology. And what's most interesting is as the utilities continue to try to change the rules and regulations for people who go solar, we're going to continue to work to find a technology solution so that we don't need them anymore. There is battery technology today <clears throat> that is infinitely superior to anything that was on the market when the company started. I predict in the next few years we'll be able to completely cut people off the grid. That's interesting. They don't need the utility anymore anymore they don't need their billing structures, they don't need their CEOs and their grossly overpaid salaries. That's exciting. When you can move communities off the grid that were formerly beholden to the SDG needs of the world, that's revolutionary. And then we start seeing our vision fulfilled.
1: So battery power is the next really big thing that you're working on.
2: Yeah, solar with batteries included.
1: And are you working on any specific projects related to that or collaborating with other companies?
2: We are. We have 110 customers who have signed up to have uh, battery systems installed. So I'll give you more on that in the next couple of months. Okay.
1: Um, Looking back on this experience that you've had um, over just about the last decade or so, do you look back and see any mistakes that you've made? Is there anything that you would have changed?
2: Yeah, I would have. I regret you no, know, I go back and forth on this. I regret the time I was away from my son. Um, that's the toughest part. But I hope and pray that in the end, he'll thank me for it.
1: Thanks for listening to I Made It in San Diego. I wrote the show, and Kinsey Moreland and Scott Lewis produced it. Adam Greenfield mastered and mixed it. Visit voiceofsandiego.org to learn more about our weekly Voice of San Diego political affairs podcast, plus Good Schools for All, The Kep Faith, and all the shows in the Voice of San Diego podcast network. If you like this show, go to voiceofsandiego.org and click donate. Or to sponsor the show, contact Erin at vosd.org.
0: Now back to our sponsored interview with Suzanne at Make-A-Wish San Diego. Most wishes involve traveling somewhere fun. Is is that right? Tell me
3: a little bit more about the kinds of things these children are, are wishing for. Right. So the, the wishes really are as unique as the kids' personalities. And um, a lot of kids do wish to dream of going away, going on a vacation. But there's actually a lot of other wishes that we grant that people maybe don't know about. I mean, a lot of kids um, unfortunately end up a little homebound probably because of their treatment or maybe some limited mobility. So um, a wish like a dream bedroom makeover or a backyard with a really cool play structure might be um, a really great wish for a child. And uh, sometimes we see kids like that feel a little bit isolated, they're missing out a little bit on typical childhood because of treatment and other things that are keeping them away from social activities. So if they then have a, this really cool backyard to play in or a really neat bedroom, it makes their friends want to come to them and it brings them a little bit back into the fold. So those are, you know, I love those types of wishes. We also, kids get really creative. We had a little girl who wished to be a mermaid. And so (laughs) we, you know, asked her, what does that mean to you? So that we can make sure she's in charge of this, of the of what it's gonna look like, what the experience is, because we want a wish to be empowering for a child, that they don't just tell us something they want and we interpret it, we wanna make sure it's coming from them and the way they dream about it, because kids are really um, not in control when they're dealing with an illness, and then Make-A-Wish comes in and gives them back a little control and lets them decide on their wish experience. I
0: was wondering about that. I have two young kids, and I think if I said,
3: you know, wish for
0: anything, they would probably wish for something like a flying zebra. Um, so is there ever a wish you can't make come true, or do you just pull all the strings, jump
3: through all the hoops to make it happen in some fashion? We sort of have a joke at Make-A-Wish that we say yes first and figure it out later. Um, <laughs> but really, when it, you know, when a child wishes for something a lot of times it takes our very dedicated wish granting volunteers to get down to the heart of the wish which is a term we use a lot we ask a lot of why questions and we ask them how they envision certain things and i'll ask a lot of details and you can dig down to what the real essence is of what they're wishing for and then we can give it the make-a-wish treatment and give them a little surprise that's so cool Your organization just granted its
0: 4,000th ever wish in San Diego. 4,000 wishes. That's a lot. So tell me about that. How
3: did you celebrate that occasion? That was a very exciting milestone for us. So as you know, we're part of the the national Make-A-Wish organization, but Make-A-Wish San Diego is actually just a small local nonprofit. We serve kids right here in San Diego, Imperial County, and we've been in town since 1983. So on June 30th, we surprised our 4,000th wish child. He didn't know. No, he obviously knew what he wished for, but he didn't know he was our 4,000th wish. We brought him to Petco Park. Thanks to the Padres who hosted everything. We brought him down on the field and he was given the surprise of a lifetime when he saw that the camping trailer he had wished for was actually right there in Petco Park and all his friends and family and doctors and teachers were there to present it to him. And so we had this big, amazing celebration with all the community, all of our Make-A-Wish community in San Diego. And now that we've had this big celebration, our focus now turns to granting the next 4,000 wishes.
0: I can't even, I'm sure you get this a lot. But I was looking at pictures on Facebook, and it's just so sweet.
3: It's okay. We we have a lot of happy tears at work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You must get this question a lot, love. Like, it's obviously a very heartwarming thing you do, but a heart-wrenching thing that you do, so... I mean how do you what keeps you going and what keeps you motivated?
3: That is a really good question. I've I've actually been with the organization for 13 years and so I've seen a lot of ups and downs and we always, you know, I always say in our job the highs are really high and the lows can be pretty low. Um but you know, we're we focus on the happy and the joy and although every child we're dealing with is critically ill and that's why they're they're a, ch- a wish child. We also know that um by empowering them to choose a wish, we're creating joy. When there's joy, there can be hope and we believe that when a child feels better, just maybe they might get better. That's great. That's I think I mean that's
0: powerful. That's absolutely true. You do a really touching, moving, important thing. And I'm sure there's lots of San Diegans that have thought about wanting to get involved. So what's sort of the easiest way to get in touch with you and make things happen and get involved with Make-A-Wish San Diego?
3: Well, you know, a lot of people have this misconception that they have to be um, a millionaire to donate to us or they have to be an actor in order to grant a wish or they have to be a famous person to be able to help us. But um, the truth is, Wishes are granted by everyday heroes in our community. It takes hundreds of people to pull off one wish. And everyone from the flight attendant to the limo driver to the baker who donated a cake for a wish send-off to the person who helped make the mermaid costume for a little girl who wished to be a mermaid. There's so many ways to get involved. Um, the easiest way, the most efficient way to help us is to make a donation online to help us because every dollar that we spend has been generously donated. Um, we also have a lot of in-kind partners who help us have access to amazing things for our kids at a discounted rate. So if you are part of a business or a company that might have an item or a service that we could use to help grant wishes, um, our website is sandiego.wish.org and there's a lot of ways that you can get involved. Another uh, point you brought up earlier was that so many kids wish to travel. And so we um, unfortunately don't get discounts on airlines, airline tickets and that's a big expense for us. So um, individuals can certainly donate their airline miles as well to help us send kids on those dream vacations all right so sandiego.wish.org is the
0: website check it out and see how you can get involved